Chapter Twenty Four of El Dorado by Baroness Orsi. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter Twenty Four, The News. The grey January day was falling drowsy and dull into the arms of night. Marguerite, sitting in the dusk beside the fire in her small boudoir, shivered a little as she drew her scarf close around her shoulders. Edwards the butler entered with the lamp. The room looked peculiarly cheery now, with the delicate white panelling of the wall glowing under the soft kiss of the flickering firelight and the steadier glow of the rose-shaded lamp. "'Has the courier not arrived yet, Edwards?' asked Marguerite, fixing the impassive face of the well-drilled servant with her large purple-rimmed eyes. "'Not yet, milady,' he replied placidly. "'It is his day, is it not?' "'Yes, milady, and the forenoon is his time. But there have been heavy rains, and the roads must be rare muddy. He must have been delayed, milady. "'Yes, I suppose so,' she said listlessly. "'That will do, Edwards. No, don't close the shutters. I'll ring presently.' The man went out of the room as automatically as he had come. He closed the door behind him, and Marguerite was once more alone. She picked up the book which she had fingered idly before the light gave out. She tried once more to fix her attention on this tale of love and adventure, written by Mr. Fielding, but she had lost the thread of the story, and there was a mist between her eyes and the printed pages. With an impatient gesture she threw down the book and passed her hand across her eyes, then seemed astonished to find that her hand was wet. She rose and went to the window. The air outside had been singularly mild all day. The thaw was persisting, and a south wind came across the channel. From France. Marguerite threw open the casement and sat down on the wide sill, leaning her head against the window-frame, and gazing out into the fast-gathering gloom. From far away, at the foot of the gently sloping lawns, the river murmured softly in the night. In the borders to the right and left, a few snowdrops still showed like tiny white specks through the surrounding darkness. Winter had begun the process of slowly shedding its mantle, coquetting with spring who still lingered in the land of infinity. Gradually the shadows drew closer and closer. The reeds and rushes on the river-bank were the first to sink into their embrace, then the big cedars on the lawn, majestic and defiant, but yielding still unconquered to the power of night. The tiny stars of snowdrop blossoms vanished one by one, and at last the cool grey ribbon of the river surface was wrapped under the mantle of evening. Only the south wind lingered on, soughing gently in the drowsy reeds, whispering among the branches of the cedars, and gently stirring the tender corollas of the sleeping snowdrops. Marguerite seemed to open out her lungs to its breath. It had come all the way from France, and on its wings had brought something of Percy, a murmur as if he had spoken, a memory that was as intangible as a dream. She shivered again, though of a truth it was not cold. The courier's delay had completely unsettled her nerves. Twice a week he came especially from Dover, and always he brought some message, some token which Percy had contrived to send from Paris. They were like tiny scraps of dry bread thrown to a starving woman. But they did just help to keep her heart alive, that poor, aching, disappointed heart that so longed for enduring happiness which it could never get. The man whom she loved with all her soul, her mind and her body, did not belong to her. He belonged to suffering humanity over there in terror-stricken France, where the cries of the innocent, the persecuted, the wretched, called louder to him than she in her love could do. He had been away three months now, during which time her starving heart had fed on its memories, and the happiness of a brief visit from him six weeks ago, when, quite unexpectedly, he had appeared before her, 
home between two desperate adventures that had given life and freedom to a number of innocent people, and nearly cost him his, and she had lain in his arms in a swoon of perfect happiness. But he had gone away again as suddenly as he had come, and for six weeks now she had lived partly in anticipation of the courier with messages from him, and partly on the fitful joy engendered by these messages. To-day she had not even that, and the disappointment seemed just now more than she could bear. She felt unaccountably restless, and could she but have analysed her feelings, had she dared so to do, she would have realised that the weight which oppressed her heart so that she could hardly breathe, was one of vague yet dark foreboding. She closed the window and returned to her seat by the fire, taking up her book with the strong resolution not to allow her nerves to get the better of her. But it was difficult to pin one's attention down to the adventures of Master Tom Jones, when one's mind was fully engrossed with those of Sir Percy Blakeney. The sound of carriage-wheels on the gravelled forecourt in the front of the house suddenly awakened her drowsy senses. She threw down the book, and with trembling hands clutched the arms of her chair, straining her ears to listen. A carriage at this hour, and on this damp winter's evening? She racked her mind, wondering who it could be. Lady Folkes was in London, she knew. Sir Andrew, of course, was in Paris. His Royal Highness, ever a faithful visitor, would surely not venture out to Richmond in this inclement weather and the courier always came on horseback. There was a murmur of voices, that of Edwards, mechanical and placid, could be heard quite distinctly, saying, "'I am sure that her ladyship will be at home for you, my lady, but I'll go and ascertain.' Marguerite ran to the door, and with joyful eagerness tore it open. "'Suzanne!' she called. "'My little Suzanne! I thought you were in London. Come up quickly. In the boudoir, yes. Oh, what good fortune hath brought you!' Suzanne flew into her arms holding the friend whom she loved so well close and closer to her heart, trying to hide her face, which was wet with tears, in the folds of Marguerite's kerchief. "'Come inside, my darling,' said Marguerite. "'Why, how cold your little hands are!' She was on the point of turning back to her boudoir, drawing Lady Folkes by the hand, when suddenly she caught sight of Sir Andrew, who stood at a little distance from her at the top of the stairs. "'Sir Andrew!' she exclaimed, with unstinted gladness. Then she paused. The cry of welcome died on her lips, leaving them dry and parted. She suddenly felt as if some fearful talons had gripped her heart, and were tearing at it with sharp, long nails. The blood flew from her cheeks and from her limbs, leaving her with a sense of icy numbness. She backed into the room, still holding Suzanne's hand, and drawing her in with her. Sir Andrew followed them, then closed the door behind him. At last the word escaped Marguerite's parched lips. Percy! "'Something has happened to him. Is he dead?' "'No, no!' exclaimed Sir Andrew quickly. Suzanne put her loving arms round her friend, and drew her down into the chair by the fire. She knelt at her feet on the hearth-rug, and pressed her own burning lips on Marguerite's icy-cold hands. Sir Andrew stood silently by, a world of loving friendship, of heart-broken sorrow, in his eyes. There was silence in the pretty, white-panelled room for a while. Marguerite sat with her eyes closed bringing the whole armoury of her will-power to bear her up outwardly now. "'Tell me,' she said at last, and her voice was toneless and dull, like one that came from the depths of a grave. "'Tell me exactly everything. Don't be afraid. I can bear it. Don't be afraid.' Sir Andrew remained standing, with bowed head, and one hand resting on the table. In a firm, clear voice, he told her the events of the past few days as they were known to him. All that he tried to hide was Armand's disobedience, which, in his heart, 
he felt was the primary cause of the catastrophe. He told of the rescue of the Dauphin from the temple, the midnight drive in the coal-cart, the meeting with Hastings and Tony in the spinney. He only gave vague explanations of Armand's stay in Paris, which caused Percy to go back to the city, even at the moment when his most daring plan had been so successfully carried through. "'Armand, I understand, has fallen in love with a beautiful woman in Paris, Lady Blakeney,' he said, seeing that a strange, puzzled look had appeared in Marguerite's pale face. She was arrested the day before the rescue of the Dauphin from the temple. Armand could not join us. He felt that he could not leave her. I am sure that you will understand.' Then, as she made no comment, he resumed his narrative. I had been ordered to go back to La Villette, and there to resume my duties as a labourer in the daytime, and to wait for Percy during the night. The fact that I had received no message from him for two days had made me somewhat worried, but I have such faith in him, such belief in his good luck and his ingenuity, that I would not allow myself to be really anxious. Then, on the third day, I heard the news. "'What news?' asked Marguerite mechanically that the Englishman who was known as the Scarlet Pimpernel had been captured in a house in the Rue de la Croix Blanche, and had been imprisoned in the Conciergerie. The Rue de la Croix Blanche? Where is that? In the Montmartre quarter. Armand lodged there. Percy, I imagine, was working to get him away, and those brutes captured him. Having heard the news, Sir Andrew, what did you do? I went into Paris and ascertained its truth. And there is no doubt of it? Alas, none. I went to the house in the Rue de la Croix Blanche. Armand had disappeared. I succeeded in inducing the concierge to talk. She seems to have been devoted to her lodger. Amidst tears she told me some of the details of the capture. Can you bear to hear them, Lady Blakeney? Yes. Tell me everything. Don't be afraid, she reiterated with the same dull monotony. It appears that early on the Tuesday morning the son of the concierge, a lad about fifteen, was sent off by her lodger with a message to number nine Rue Saint-Germain-Luxrois. That was the house where Percy was staying all last week, where he kept disguises and so on for us all, and where some of our meetings were held. Percy evidently expected that Armand would try and communicate with him at that address, for when the lad arrived in front of the house he was accosted, so he says, by a big, rough workman, who browbeat him into giving up the lodger's letter, and finally pressed a piece of gold into his hand. The workman was Blakeney, of course. I imagine that Armand, at the time that he wrote the letter, must have been under the belief that Mademoiselle Lange was still in prison. He could not know then that Blakeney had already got her into comparative safety. In the letter he must have spoken of the terrible plight in which he stood, and also of his fears for the woman he loved. Percy was not the man to leave a comrade in the lurch. He would not be the man whom we all love and admire, whose word we all obey, for whose sake we would gladly all of us give our life. He would not be that man, if he did not brave even certain dangers in order to be of help to those who call on him. Armand called, and Percy went to him. He must have known that Armand was being spied upon, for Armand, alas, was already a marked man, and the watchdogs of those infernal committees were already on his heels. Whether these sleuth-hounds had followed the son of the concierge and seen him give the letter to the workman in the Rue Saint-Germain-Luxrois, or whether the concierge in the Rue de la Croix Blanche was nothing but a spy of herons, or again, whether the Committee of General Security kept a company of soldiers in constant alert in that house, we shall, of course, never know. All that I do know is that Percy entered that fatal house at half-past ten, and that a quarter of an hour later the concierge saw some of the soldiers descending the stairs, carrying a heavy burden. She peeped out of her lodge, 
and by the light of the corridor she saw that the heavy burden was the body of a man bound closely with ropes. His eyes were closed, his clothes were stained with blood. He was seemingly unconscious. The next day the official organ of the government proclaimed the capture of the Scarlet Pimpernel, and there was a public holiday in honour of the event. Marguerite had listened to this terrible narrative dry-eyed and silent. Now she still sat there, hardly conscious of what went on around her, of Suzanne's tears that fell unceasingly upon her fingers, of Sir Andrew who had sunk into a chair and buried his head in his hands. She was hardly conscious that she lived. The universe seemed to have stood still before this awful, monstrous cataclysm. But nevertheless, she was the first to return to the active realities of the present. "'Sir Andrew,' she said after a while, "'tell me, where are my lords Tony and Hastings?' "'At Calais, madam,' he replied. "'I saw them there on my way hither. They had delivered the Dauphin safely into the hands of his adherents at Mantes, and were awaiting Blakeney's further orders, as he had commanded them to do. "'Will they wait for us there, think you?' "'For us, Lady Blakeney?' he exclaimed in puzzlement. "'Yes, for us, Sir Andrew,' she replied, whilst the ghost of a smile flitted across her drawn face. "'You had thought of accompanying me to Paris, had you not?' "'But, Lady Blakeney—ah, I know what you would say, Sir Andrew. You will speak of dangers, of risks, of death, mayhap. You will tell me that I, as a woman, can do nothing to help my husband, that I could be but a hindrance to him, just as I was in Boulogne. But everything is so different now.' Whilst those brutes planned his capture, he was clever enough to outwit them. But now they have actually got him. Think you they'll let him escape? They'll watch him night and day, my friend, just as they watch the unfortunate Queen. But they'll not keep him months, weeks, or even days in prison. Even Chauvelin now will no longer attempt to play with the Scarlet Pimpernel. They have him, and they will hold him until such time as they take him to the guillotine. Her voice broke in a sob. Her self-control was threatening to leave her. She was but a woman young and passionately in love with the man who was about to die an ignominious death, far away from his country, his kindred, his friends. I cannot let him die alone, Sir Andrew. He will be longing for me, and—and and after all there is you, and my Lord Tony, and Lord Hastings, and the others. Surely—surely we are not going to let him die, not like that, and not alone." "'You are right, Lady Blakeney,' said Sir Andrew earnestly. We are not going to let him die, if human agency can do aught to save him. Already Tony, Hastings, and I have agreed to return to Paris. There are one or two hidden places in and around the city, known only to Percy and to the members of the League, where he must find one or more of us if he succeeds in getting away. All the way between Paris and Calais we have places of refuge, places where any of us can hide at a given moment, where we can find disguises when we want them, or horses in an emergency. No, no, we are not going to despair, Lady Blakeney. There are nineteen of us prepared to lay down our lives for the Scarlet Pimpernel. Already I, as his lieutenant, have been selected as the leader of as determined a gang as has ever entered on a work of rescue before. We leave for Paris to-morrow, and if human pluck and devotion can destroy mountains, then we'll destroy them. Our watchword is, God save the Scarlet Pimpernel." He knelt beside her chair, and kissed the cold fingers which, with a sad little smile, she held out to him. "'And God bless you all,' she murmured. Suzanne had risen to her feet when her husband knelt. Now he stood up beside her. The dainty young woman, hardly more than a child, was doing her best to restrain her tears. "'See how selfish I am,' said Marguerite. "'I talk calmly of taking your husband from you, when I myself know the bitterness of such partings.' "'My husband will go where his duty calls him,' said Suzanne, with charming and simple dignity. "'I love him with all my heart, because he is brave and good. 
He would not leave his comrade, who is also his chief, in the lurch. God will protect him, I know. I would not ask him to play the part of a coward. Her brown eyes glowed with pride. She was the true wife of a soldier, and with all her dainty ways and childlike manners, she was a splendid woman and a staunch friend. Sir Percy Blakeney had saved her entire family from death. The Comte and Comtesse de Tournay, the Vicomte, her brother, and she herself, all owed their lives to the Scarlet Pimpernel. This she was not like to forget. "'There is but little danger for us, I fear me,' said Sir Andrew lightly. "'The revolutionary government only wants to strike at a head. It cares nothing for the limbs. Perhaps it feels that without our leader we are enemies not worthy of persecution. If there are any dangers, so much the better,' he added. "'But I don't anticipate any, unless we succeed in freeing our chief, and having freed him we fear nothing more.' The same applies to me, Sir Andrew, rejoined Marguerite earnestly. Now that they have captured Percy, those human fiends will care naught for me. If you succeed in freeing Percy, I, like you, will have nothing more to fear. And if you fail— She paused and put her small white hand on Sir Andrew's arm. Take me with you, Sir Andrew, she entreated. Do not condemn me to the awful torture of weary waiting, day after day, wandering, guessing, never daring to hope, lest hope deferred be more hard to bear than dreary hopelessness. Then, as Sir Andrew, very undecided, yet half inclined to yield, stood silent and irresolute, she pressed her point, gently but firmly insistent. I would not be in the way, Sir Andrew. I would know how to efface myself so as not to interfere with your plans. But, oh, she added, while a quivering note of passion trembled in her voice, can't you see that I must breathe the air that he breathes, else I shall stifle or mayhap go mad? Sir Andrew turned to his wife, a mute query in his eyes. You would do an inhuman and cruel act, said Suzanne, with seriousness that sat quaintly on her baby face, if you did not afford your protection to Marguerite, for I do believe that if you did not take her with you to-morrow, she would go to Paris alone. Marguerite thanked her friend with her eyes. Suzanne was a child in nature, but she had a woman's heart. She loved her husband, and therefore knew and understood what Marguerite must be suffering now. Sir Andrew no longer could resist the unfortunate woman's earnest pleading. Frankly, he thought that if she remained in England while Percy was in such deadly peril, she ran the grave risk of losing her reason before the terrible strain of suspense. He knew her to be a woman of courage, and one capable of great physical endurance, and really he was quite honest when he said that he did not believe there would be much danger for the headless league of the Scarlet Pimpernel unless they succeeded in freeing their chief. And if they did succeed, then indeed there would be nothing to fear, for the brave and loving wife who, like every true woman does, and has done in like circumstances since the beginning of time, was only demanding with passionate insistence the right to share the fate, good or ill, of the man whom she loved. End of chapter 24